Welcome to NetSmart Care Threads, a podcast where human services and post-acute leaders across the healthcare continuum come together to discuss industry trends, challenges, and opportunities. Listen as we uncover real stories about how to innovate and improve the quality of care for the communities we serve. Let's get into the show. My name is Tom Herzog, and I'm your host today. I serve as the Chief Operating Officer for NetSmart, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Michael Wasserman, immediate past president of the California Association of Long-Term Care Medicine and medical director at Eisenberg Village. Dr. Wiserman is a geriatrician who has devoted his career to serving the needs of older adults. He has been a tireless advocate for vulnerable older adults during the COVID-19 pandemic. He has spoken extensively and has been published on a variety of topics, including healthy aging, Alzheimer's disease, the business of healthcare, practice management, and managed care. And recently, you may have seen his many appearances on CNN, where he has discussed the impact of the pandemic on the long-term care community. His keynote presentation at our LTC virtual symposium titled Beyond the Devastation, Bringing Quality and Financial Viability to Long-Term Care, shed light on the myriad of challenges facing the post-acute and long-term community in the wake of the pandemic as he spoke some very pragmatic recommendations regarding how we can move forward together. Today's Care Thread podcast will center around the topics of workforce strategy, quality improvement, and the role of data collection, strategic alignment, and technology. Dr. Wasserman, thank you very much for joining us and spending time, and thank you for speaking at the symposium as well. And what we thought we'd do is just kind of gather some of the things that you've uh, spoken about and, and really hit the high points to really reinforce the things we've spoken about. And I guess that leads me to my first question, which is if you don't mind sharing with our audience your perspective on the merging challenges and opportunities facing clinical teams and physician groups servicing the long-term care community. Well, thanks, Tom, and and thank you to NetSmart for giving me this opportunity. You know, I I think it's pertinent that you open with a question about clinical, and that is the key. We are providing care in the long-term care continuum for vulnerable older adults and younger adults who who have chronic illnesses and other vulnerabilities. And I I like to put this into sort of three layers, but at the top of that, I'm a geriatrician. I've cared for older adults for over three decades as a clinician, and it is absolutely essential that we instill principles of geriatrics and geriatric medicine, post-acute long-term care medicine into our approach to how we care for folks in in nursing homes. That is absolutely essential. And in my talk at the symposium, I I spoke a lot about other structural issues in the industry that need to be fixed. And and they're a, a, a real important pillar. And I also addressed the fact that you need strong, effective, competent leadership in order to actually make these things happen. So I, I think first and foremost, if we don't have the clinical folks, physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, pharmacists, social workers, nurses, if they don't bring their knowledge in terms of caring for vulnerable or adults into the system, we're never going to succeed. And 
If they do that, the system itself needs to be structured and the leaders, the administrators, the directors of nursing, the other leaders need to allow the clinicians to do their job, allow the clinicians to help educate and train the staff. Um, and I, I think that's been a, a real problem in the industry for many years that clinicians really aren't treated equally, are not allowed to be an integral part of everything that goes on. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself with some of the other questions I know you're going to ask me. So I think that's really the most important way of, of putting this. Well, I'm going to ask a couple of sub questions on that. And I'll, the first one, you know, we're speaking to an audience that goes beyond those who are directly connected with the communities you serve. And you're really hitting on a stigma mindset, I believe, in some of the words and things uh, when you talk about clinicians coming to the table. Not only that, but what consumers think about long term care facilities. You know, this is a great opportunity. What when when we refer to long and I and I I don't even use the word industry anymore because I'm like you know this really is an industry. It's really a community, and and it's a group of people coming together. What are some of the words and things that you would challenge us that we need to rethink or reshape in order to help break some of that muscle memory as we define the path forward? So it's funny, I've actually been working on an op-ed piece on the whole question of, is this an industry or is this a profession? Oh, there and, you go. And from my perspective, as a clinician caring for people in long-term care, it's a profession. Yeah. Where it is an industry, and we really can't run away from that too much, is the financing behind yeah. The, the, the nursing homes, the way they're structured, uh, the way the business entities work, that is an industry. And yeah. if, we don't, if we don't deal with the industry side, we're never going to allow the profession to do its job. And, and I think one of my favorite analogies is actually college. When I was in college, I lived warm. I had a roommate. I ate in a dining hall every day. I did activities and went to class. And that was the time, I had the time of my life. That was some of the best times of my life. If you're in a nursing home, you have all the same things. You have a roommate, you live in a dining hall, you have activities. And yet we say that's institutionalization and it's, it's horrible. And I disagree. I, I have cared for many nursing home residents who absolutely appreciate the caregivers who care for them in nursing homes and the folks who work in nursing homes, in my opinion, are amongst the most dedicated, caring, yeah. compassionate human beings I've ever worked with. And so I think to your point, we have to point out the positives of, of long-term care, of nursing homes, but those caring individuals are put under tremendous pressure, yeah. structurally, operationally, financially, that ultimately has a negative impact on the quality of care that's delivered in nursing homes. And so we're going to have to deal with both at the same time. 
So that was a very nice way of telling me nicely that I was kind of wrong, that it's not one or the other, Tom, <laughs> it's both. So uh, I'm learning, I'm a student today, so I will walk away. And I used to shy away from that, but I love how you explained that is at the end of the day, there is a commercial aspect to it. There is an industry aspect. Your point is we can't ignore that because the quality and our ability to serve, if we don't have that as top of the mindset, then we're not going to be able to solve some of the challenges in front of us. And then the profession, it is a profession. It is one that's a calling to a what I would say is cause and community. I know that those who serve this community do so from heart in mind with a, with a desire to make a difference. And this is something, you know, I've always said, if there's common ground, if we can find common ground today, it's in healthcare because it all finds us at some point in life, um, either from the beginning or the end. I, can I make, I got to make one comment on your community to really uh, yeah. highlight and put an exclamation point on your community concept. Yeah. Um, I actually recently tweeted something on this that uh, we, we wrote a white paper for CMS requesting, proposing community advisory committees. Yeah. So that we believe that we must bring the community into the, the whole milieu, yeah. the whole circle of nursing homes from an accountability perspective. The, the owners of the nursing homes, the, the leadership of the nursing homes need to both engage and be accountable to the communities they serve. And, and this couldn't be even more important in communities with a high percentage of people of color Right. Which has been devastated by the pandemic. But even prior to the pandemic, the literature was very clear that communities of color were had disproportionate quality issues with their nursing homes. And and so I think bringing up the word community is absolutely essential. And it's a real important thing to focus on. Well, you just you just set the table for our follow up podcast, because I think that's probably another whole topic in itself. And then how do we find common ground in that community? And I think the last two years now, I've been saying 18 months, but we're almost on two years. And it's not just been the pandemic. It's been um, the challenges we face as a society, um, the social justice aspects, exposing topics of conversation that I think we thought we were aware of, um, we're open to, and now are pressing in even more. So I'm going to put that on my list here because I want to come back to that one. I love that thought because uh, it is a new innovative thought. One more follow-up question because you, you speaking of uh, Twitter, and I think it was just within the last day, um, and this is on the leadership aspect that you talk, talked about. You said it's time we recognize the need for greater leadership and management competencies in this community. Can you just expand a little bit more on that? Because I'm because I'm guessing a lot of people feel like, well, we we do have leaders here. What's what's different that that you're you're challenging us to think about? So the administrator of a nursing home is essentially the CEO of a highly complex, large, small business, ten million dollar a year business. The director of nursing is essentially the chief operating officer. Yeah. And yet, look at the education and training that these folks get. I don't want to minimize, there's a lot of great people who in these leadership positions, but how much training do they have to be the CEO and the chief operating officer of essentially a mini hospital? Yeah. 
And, and I would argue that they don't have enough training. And so what happens is they are, they don't have the tools to deal with the pressures, particularly the financial pressures that are put on them. And that leads to decision-making that ultimately I would argue is not in the best clinical interest of the residents. And so I, I think it's absolutely essential that we find ways to better train right. all of the leaders in nursing homes. And I am particularly focused on the leadership team yeah. because the administrator themselves cannot do it alone. Right. This really takes a whole team of leaders. And over the last decade, we've learned a lot about team leadership. Yeah. And the other thing is, uh, and I shared during my presentation, there was a study done a decade ago on how leadership styles make a huge difference. And and they talk about a consensus style of leadership, which is, I think, often another term for the servant leadership approach. Yeah. And rather than sort of a autocratic leadership approach, and actually the study that was done a decade ago it was a good study done on many, many nursing homes showed that that autocratic leadership style was related to not only poorer outcomes, but greater turnover of staff. And a consensus style or servant style of leadership was correlated to higher quality, lower turnover. And so I think that's the tip of the iceberg that if we don't get our act together on creating stronger, more competent leaders, we're not going to make the changes we need to make. Well, and I think this is bi-directional. I'll also tell you, while we're not in the clear in the clinical um, caregiver or services uh, provider, we serve those who do that. And we need to continue to learn and unlearn, and in some cases, relearn. And that, I think that's one of the areas where we can help each other. I'm, for instance, you you talk about the, the, the role of a COO. That's the role I play on a business side. And, you know, our clients do a phenomenal job at uh, continuing to help point us to the things that we can be doing better, innovation they'd like to see. And I think that's bi-directional. We need to help out on some of that business side. I mean, the the notion out there, uh, no margin, no mission, is very applicable today. And I think the I love the, that you hit so pragmatically on the leadership. The leadership models that got us here are likely not going to be the leadership models that get us there. And we have to be willing to make the pivots, adapt, and turns along that. And I think, you know, I, that leads me to my next question or my next thought here. And you hit on it from the the, the, the clinical team has to uh, be at the table. So not all long-term care facilities invest in the role of medical director. What is the status quo of this role in most long-term care facilities? And why is it important for organizations to consider investing in a medical director? Well, I guess this will be my soundbite for the talk, uh, for the podcast. The status quo for medical direction in nursing homes throughout the United States is pathetic. Okay. Okay, that's that's gonna that's gonna grab attention. So I will I'll take you up on that. I'll probably use that. And and the reason is that the number of nursing homes that have competent, engaged, qualified medical directors 
is pretty darn low, probably on the order of 10 to 15 percent. Wow. And so, you know, when when 80 plus percent of nursing homes around the country either don't have competent medical directors or even when they do don't engage them, that is pathetic. And, and you know, you, you've, you've got to put that in the, the realm of the fact that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, from a regulatory perspective, looks at the medical director as the medical clinical leader in the facility, responsible for the medical care that goes on in the facility. And that priority has, for lack, has been ignored for decades despite efforts by, by folks like AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, to promote the role of the medical director, to develop certification a certification program for medical directors. Now, I am excited that my organization, the California Association for Long-Term Care Medicine, recently got a bill passed and signed by the governor of California requiring every nursing home in the state of California to have a certified medical director. This, this is a huge opportunity that we cannot lose, that all the medical directors in California need to be certified, but as important, just as I've said, where leadership and structure matter, you have to use them then. Yeah. You have to engage them. You have to involve them in decision-making. You have to involve them as part of the leadership team. Um, you have to listen and hear your medical director in terms of the quality of clinical care in your facility. So I think this is all sort of circular in the sense of what we taught, what I opened up with. Right. Um, correlating, integrating the, the geriatrics approach with the skills necessary and the leadership yeah. necessary to actually make it happen. So, I mean, let's, I'm an organization. Um, we don't have a clinical medical director today. No, we need one. When you look at those organizations, again, I like that you said it's not just having one, it's allowing them, it's using them, allowing them to be part of the conversations and in, in shaping the current needs and also those going forward. What advice would you give me? Uh, I, I want to go do something right now. So where, where do I start? So, you know, this is what's interesting. There's so many folks that like to just complain. I'm not a, I don't like to complain. I, I'm someone who likes to develop solutions. And, and so people will say, well, we don't have medical directors that have the certification. We don't have medical directors with the background in geriatrics. And so how can you force us to, or how can you ask us to have these people when they don't, we can't find them? What I would say is, call me a little old fashioned, I believe that the vast majority of physicians want to do the right thing. We all took the Hippocratic Oath. We all are professionals. We really want to do the right thing. And, you know, we're not stupid. I mean, we went through, we went through college, we went through medical school, we went through residency. I mean, trust me, we, we are lifelong learners. We can learn anything that's given to us as physicians. And so I think what I would say is there is a, a certification course for medical directors. So let's say you have a medical director who doesn't have the tools, that doesn't have the expertise. Well, get them to take the course. 
they will learn, they will improve, they will then have the tools to be a, a better medical director. This is not rocket science. And it's also not an overly burdensome, it's not a one-year program. I mean, it's, there's, and I'm on the faculty, for full disclosure, I'm on the faculty of the certification program. Right. I've been through it like three times in the last two, two decades. I learn myself. Every right. time I take the course, I, I participate in the course, the physicians who already exist, because remember, every nursing home has to have a medical director. Yeah. What it's now a matter of doing is making sure those medical directors have the competencies, the tools, and the time, and, and the willingness to allow them to be engaged. And, and those are huge issues yeah. um, that the facilities really need to step up and involve their medical director and make them feel welcome yeah. in terms of engaging. Well, and I think the certification allows you to put a stake in the ground. You've got to start somewhere. So it creates a great baseline of measurement. Here's what we're doing well at. Here's areas that we need to improve at. And I think that's one of the benefits of those types of programs is it really lays out a framework <laughs> to say, these are the areas of opportunity and challenges that we need to work together on that, and I guess that's a great segue for the next question. And it really has to do with how we bring these teams together. And I guess I'd ask you, what are your recommendations for getting the clinical and the operation teams to align on the goals for quality outcomes? I mean, common ground is possible, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, you, you, you said no margin, no mission. I once wrote in a book I wrote, um, I had a chapter, no margin, no mission, but no mission, no margin. Yeah. And I believe you have to do both. And one of my favorite analogies is my, I like to look at it, a three-sided scale, okay? And the three sides of the scale are financial, operational, and clinical. And in healthcare in general and nursing homes in particular, I believe that you need to make sure that the scale is balanced. And so it's not just about the profit and loss. It's not just about wages and staffing. It's also about the clinical care. And I believe only when the clinical acumen and the clinical direction is equal, and I'm not suggesting that the clinical be above or is more right. strongly weighed. I'm suggesting that the clinical folks have equal say and equal weight as the financial and the operational folks. And so what that means at the nursing home level is, you know, if, if from a financial perspective, you're, you're saying, hey, I'm not sure we can afford this level of staffing. And that's a real big issue right now. Right. And the clinical folks saying, well, okay, but here's the literature. This is the level of staffing that is correlated to higher quality of care. And then you have to say, okay, well, how can we do this? Where can, is there a places we can cut or are there things we need to do to make this happen? And instead of having just the financial or operational people figure out the answer, which is what happens right now, the clinical folks are going to be at that table yeah. and you're not going to leave the room until you all agree right. on a solution. And I think that is absolutely, and look, I, I've worked in nursing homes for over three decades. The best nursing homes I've worked in, the director of nursing and the administrator collaborate 
right. medical director collaborates. These folks are working together with the singular goal of doing the right thing for the residents. And the best amongst them figure out how to make it work. Yeah. And I'll give you one example. As a geriatrician, I have told many folks that I can walk into many nursing homes around the country and discontinue half of the med prescription medications that are being given in those nursing homes. Okay. We over-medicate. There is a strong move to de-prescribe. AMBA's got a program on the drive to de-prescribe. We give nursing home residents way too many med medications. Well, what if we reduced the number of unnecessary medications and we found ourselves, instead of the residents having an average number of 10 or 12 medications, maybe they've got two or three. Well, now what happens to the nurse time? the time they spent passing medications, the time they spent documenting adverse events, talk data, how yeah. much input, you know, I mean, there are so many ways to improve care smartly while most effectively utilizing the resources and the staff we have, but that will only happen when we absolutely include the clinical folks and right. their knowledge. I like, I mean, one, <laughs> I like that you're not afraid to hold back. So uh, the over uh, prescribing one will always be a tough and sensitive topic. Appreciate you putting that out there. And I, I guess I'll hit that on, you know, as we're talking here, there's a causation of correlation to everything. And when we stop as a team and look at it, really from that three, it's really the three-legged stool, um, clinical, operational, and financial. And then I wrote down, I'm going to, I'm going to borrow this from you because I've been using the no margin, no mission, but your point is, you know, where, where there's unity is no mission, no margin. So when the team aligns on those fundamental pieces together, if there's any strength in one over the others, it does tend to find itself out of balance and you may be accomplishing, but are you accomplishing it to the best of your ability or better said to the best of the mission? So what I hear you encouraging is hey, get those three stakeholders in a room, align on what that mission means. And then programmically, clinically, what do we need to be doing strategically, operationally, tactically uh, from a clinical, operational, and financial perspective to be able to go uh, make those things happen. I'm going to touch on that last one in our last question, but before we get to that, and, and that's where you were talking about using data to really understand the context of a situation, but I think that's a great closing comment because I want to hear your thoughts on how we do that. But before I get there, I want to hit on the windshield right now, which is a pandemic. And I think as we hopefully are beginning to see an end um, of coming out of the pandemic or, or we're getting better at navigating it, that's my optimistic view, uh, we have new data surrounding the effects of social isolation on residents. Do you see any additional improved data sets becoming available and how do you think they should be leveraged for providers? No, you know, this sort of circles back to when I when I talk about the geriatrics approach to care. Right. Those of us in geriatrics, it's not just about evidence-based medicine, because there actually isn't a lot of evidence-based medicine when it comes to 95-year-old nursing home residents. Back to social factors, psychological factors, these all matter. And when you look at the existing data sets, they're inadequate. 
they really don't capture these things. So I think there are huge opportunities. And in fact, I've recently been asked to work with some folks looking at the concept of well-being uh, and what sorts of metrics we use to capture well-being. And, and, and I think, uh, you know, one of the key tenets of, of geriatric medicine is uh, quality of life and function. Yeah. And when we look at quality of life, what metrics are we using to look at quality of life? Well, not really. And so, you know, I, I think as we look at social isolation and social determinants of care and those factors, there is a huge need to develop metrics yeah. that give us insight into these areas. They're absolutely critical. Well, I think that's, I'll just tell you as a technologist and um, someone who focuses on providing solutions, is we're fundamentally going under a rethink. Everything's been so episodic focused for so long that we need to look at those social determinants and bring those to what I call the point of action in whatever role that you're in. And for, for you know, for all, for so many years, we've used point of care. Well, that's one, is, ironically, it speaks to the challenges you, you talked to earlier. People need data, they need analysis whatever they're doing, whether it's clinically, operationally, or financially, to be able to make the best decisions. This whole reporting notion is almost analog and barbaric in that it tells me what happened instead of correlating against the possibilities of what can be right now. Would I make a decision different if I use that same analysis using, I'll use the buzzwords, big data, or even I'll interject controversial words, artificial intelligence or, me, or, or machine learning at the point I'm making that decision, not to take the decision away from me, but to make that better decision. And I, you know, I would tell you one of the things that I've really come out of and challenging is for so long, we've looked at behavior as a vertical when really it's a horizontal in healthcare, it touches everything. And I think in uh, long-term care especially, we've all woken to the notion that this has to be complementary in a, um, in a, as we're prescribing, as we're considering different treatment or possibilities. So love hearing you share that. You know, I think I'm gonna to touch on I was recently working with an organization that was really focused on data in the rearview mirror. Yeah. And you are so right that, and I love data. I, I mean, I'm a kind of a data junkie, if, if yeah. you will. However, you cannot use data to define quality. You have to use quality to define data. And we, we still have to develop the necessary data points to look at quality going forward rather than using archaic data points that don't reflect quality or well-being or any of those things. And we look retroactively and retrospectively at them. So I, I think, I think this is looking forward rather than back. Well, I may have you join me then in saying we got to get word of the word reporting because it's very much an analog mindset. I'm going to steal another buzzword from you. Data needs to define quality. Quality doesn't define data. I love that and definitely going to borrow that. And I think that's on the kind of the last topic or question here. Um, I think it's another great segue. You've helped me a ton in this, uh, in this uh, conversation. And I guess I'll ask you is what role do you see technology data collection, 
communications tools playing in the effort to reduce costs and improve outcomes. I know, I know you've got a lot of thoughts there. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to go to 30,000 feet on this. Go for um, it. You know, Amazon has grocery stores where you walk in, you pick out your groceries and you leave. You never go through a checkout stand. You never pull out your credit card. You don't do anything. How do they do that? Sensors, technology, artificial intelligence, all these things. Why aren't we using that in long-term care? Well, I'll tell you why. There are a few reasons. One is everything technologic right now is billing-centric. Yes. It needs to be care-centric. Okay, so we need to use technology. The technology needs to be care-centric. Just imagine a nursing home of the future where... The CNA goes in, talks to the resident, holds their hand, turns them, bathes them, does whatever they have. And everything they've done is captured. And that CNA doesn't have to go into a a room at the end of the shift, try to remember what they did and document it inaccurately. I mean, there there are many studies that show that the documentation of staff in nursing homes is not good. And so this is the nursing home of the future where all of this is captured. And then as you develop that data, now you have the ability to effectively develop artificial intelligence solutions and algorithms. Because keep in mind, if you're trying to develop artificial intelligence with data that is inaccurately inputted by human beings, you're gonna have garbage in, garbage out. So that is, that is the future. That is my dream. I, you know, the crazy thing is the technology to do what I just said exists. Today. Oh yeah. Yes. And, and it shouldn't take 20 or 30 years for this to be developed. Yeah. The problem is the industry is so, you know, is, is so built by billing and revenue and what I've suggested doesn't fit yeah. nicely into that. Yeah. And so there's not a lot of incentive from an industry perspective to move in this direction. Yeah. From a quality perspective and, and actually from an efficiency perspective, there's a huge uh, reason to move in this direction. Yeah, I mean, it's there. It's there. It's waiting for us. It's saying we it wants us to go um, construct and in some cases deconstruct. And I couldn't agree with you more. You know, my the words I've used is we really have got to move from a patient uh, payment centric system to a person centric system. And if there's something that I think we're going to learn over the last 18 months to two years is we got to get back to the humanity of it, the person. Yes, the industry part, it's got to be cost feasible. It's got to be able to make sense and those types of things. It just can't be that mission piece. Totally agree. And I'm going to borrow that from you and I will add that to it. But the technology, I, I believe the efficiency is there. The gains are there. We've got to be willing to challenge and disrupt status quo. And, you know, I want to thank you because you're you're leading the conversation. You're willing to use disruptive thoughts 
uh, disruptive uh, point to say we've got to be doing things a different way. And um, it's making a difference. It's why we wanted to get you on the podcast today. And I think, you know, what I, I'll ask you for one more last closing thought before I close this out here. But, and, and I guess it would be around this, is what would you encourage people? What would you encourage us to do to go make a difference and be part of the change? So I think there's one thing we've learned or I've learned even in the last two years is if you don't speak up, you'll never be heard. And I think we are at an inflection point with long-term care. And it's time for all of us to engage. That's why, again, back to the community involvement, we're all getting older. We all have loved ones who are getting older. The nursing home industry needs structural change. I would love being an entrepreneur at heart. I would love to see the industry actually make these changes by themselves. Yeah, But I have my skepticism about that happening because no one likes change. Change is hard. And so sometimes you need a little push. And I think at the federal level, reaching out to your congressman, congressman, at the state level, reaching out to your legislators, reaching out to your governors, reaching out to your senators, I think there's a lot of opportunities. And I will say, there are a number of caregiver organizations that have really sprouted during the pandemic, especially around social isolation, right. that finally are bringing that caregiver voice to the table. And with those voices, ultimately become votes. And with those yeah. votes, ultimately, the politicians have no choice but to listen. Yeah. So I, I think it is absolutely critical that we all engage with our elected officials right. in this area and continue to speak out. And I don't even have to say passionately because anyone who's involved in, in caring about long-term care right. is almost by default passionate. Yeah, I would a hundred percent agree. And I guess what I hear you challenging me, challenging us, speak up, speak for, speak out and repeat. And repeat again, uh, because what's not heard is not listened to, and we've got to make sure it's heard in all aspects of life, who we're working with, our communities we live in, those who we vote to represent us. It makes a big difference, and that's what today's conversation was about, um, everyone. And Dr. Wasserman, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. We're kindred spirits. I feel like you and I could talk in, uh, uh, for the next couple of hours. I guess, you know, how can listeners stay connected with you? What's the best way for them if they want to engage in conversation with you? So I'm a, a big fan of Twitter. You can find me at Wasdoc, W-A-S-S-D-O-C, on Twitter. Just so you'll know, pretty much the only people I follow on Twitter are other geriatricians, other people in post-acute and long-term care, other folks in gerontology and aging. I keep my Twitter follow, the folks I follow, very clean in that regards. And I'd say at about a 98% level, most of my tweets are reflective of post-acute long-term care, geriatrics, aging policy. There's the occasional other thing that finds its way in there, but pretty rare. Yeah. And, and I think I find that I keep up personally with the field of geriatrics and aging through Twitter by 
effectively using Twitter. So on two fronts, follow me at Wastock on Twitter, but also take a look at how you use Twitter. If you really want to use it to learn more about geriatrics and long-term care and post-acute, clean up, clean up the folks you follow. Keep the junk out. I like it. I think it's a great recommendation in general. You and I were talking beforehand. I do think you're a shining star on Twitter. I had the opportunity to go through. I like how you invite conversation and you constructively encourage dialogue. And it, it turns out we can use those things in a positive way. Uh, and you're an example of that. And I appreciate your leadership for us. And thank you for being with us. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating. Hopefully a five-star rating because those things help. They encourage and there's algorithms and all those things out there. But we would appreciate your feedback. And many of you have shared the topics and conversations with us. Continue those coming. We're listening. We want to engage. And hopefully, if you've seen, we're trying to have different conversations. We're trying to be a little disruptive, not conventional. These aren't commercials, if you will. We're talking about real everyday challenges and opportunities, and we're bringing thought leaders to the table to inspire us, encourage us, and motivate us on the things we can do. So thank you. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining. Until next time. At NetSmart, we understand the challenges facing provider organizations. Our team will help you navigate changing value-based care models with solutions and services that make person-centered care a reality. We'll equip you with technology and services that provide holistic, real-time views of care histories that inform better decision-making and better outcomes. Visit us today at ntst.com. NetSmart, serving you so you can serve others. Thanks for listening to the NetSmart Care Threads podcast. Through collaboration and conversation, we can work together to make healthcare more connected than ever before and better support the communities we serve. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.